Welcome to the special broadcast on the war in Palestine. I'm joined here by Nora Barrows-Friedman. Nora is the host of The Brief Podcast and an editor at the Electronic Intifada. Justin Podur is a host of the Anti-Empire Project and the author of Siege Breakers. Uh, Tarek Lubani is an emergency room physician who's worked extensively in Gaza. And I'm John Elmer, the host of The Brief Podcast. And we are going to bring you a special broadcast today on the war in Israel and Palestine. We are now in day seven of the conflict. Maybe, Nora, why don't you give us a quick timeline of how we got to this point? Well, of course, um, you know, the clock doesn't start a week ago. It starts in 1947, 1948, when Israel announced itself as a state on the ruins of 500 Palestinian villages and towns and the expulsion of 800 thousand Palestinians. And continuously since then, Israel has been, uh, I mean, its state policy has been to kick Palestinians out, as we all know. And so uh, in late April, uh, you know, during Ramadan, Israeli forces were attempting to prevent Palestinian worshipers from entering through the Damascus Gate, which is like, you know, the main entrance to the old city in occupied East Jerusalem. And Palestinians actually were able to resist that successfully. And uh, at the same time, Palestinians were resisting their continued expulsion in the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah, where uh, settler and settler organizations have been using the Israeli courts to try and kick Palestinians out of their homes, uh, not just recently, but for years and years. And we saw that directly, right, Nora? Like we yeah. saw the the Israeli settler from New York standing right. in the, the backyard yeah. of the person whose house he was stealing in the moment right. he was stealing it. Right. And he did this whole thing, which is very like, as Stephen Salida, the recovering academic and wonderful scholar and writer said, is very familiar to, to Americans. You know, like he was he was just like, well, if I don't take it, someone else will, you know, don't blame me sort of thing, this very like, you know, manifest destiny sort of settler ethos. And yeah, they so, said they, they, the Israeli government framed it as a real estate dispute. Right, right. And so did the New York Times and the Washington Post <laughs> and CNN, you know, they it's it's disputed. It's a yeah, it's some sort of like and then and then they use the word eviction. That's right. Palestinians are not paying their rent. They're right. behind on their rent payments. Right. Right. So they're getting right. evicted. That's right. By the court. Right. And so Sheikh Jarrah is on is on the route from the West Bank into prey at Al-Aqsa. Right. So people are coming in and it's creating an off like a, an organic, essentially an organic uprising because people are coming in to yeah. prey are being blocked by the various levels of citizenship. Maybe we could talk a minute about like how different Palestinians in different areas have citizenship and how that manifests in Sheikh Jarrah. Sure. Well, we can get into that a little bit later. I think it's I think it's more important to talk about the the growing unity um, between um, you know the 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 different um, you know identifications too of of Palestinian society that have been stratified by you know the Israeli government. Right. And so project. yeah, let's just let's just let's just map it out. Yeah. So uh, you said 1948. So 1948 uh, means that the Palestinians 
that are now in what's called 1948 Israel, the Palestinian citizens of Israel, sometimes called in the media, the Arab the citizens Israeli of Arabs, Israel, yeah. erasing their Palestinian right. identity. Yeah. That's uh, one group. Um, in, <clears throat> in that war, uh, Jordan and Egypt were um, essentially by the end of it in control of what's now uh, the West Bank uh, and the Gaza Strip. Uh, in 1967, there's a war where Israel takes over those two territories. Right. And today, the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and the Palestinian citizens of Israel all have different um, identification. Right. They're not allowed to go freely between these, these areas where they're all Palestinians. Um, right. And in the West Bank, there are lots of Jewish Israeli settlers who have super rights to go anywhere and do anything. Right. Um, and the Palestinians are not allowed by checkpoint. So when you went just just to introduce when you say the unity between these different yeah. groups, yeah. these are groups of the same community, the same people that have been separated and whose movements and every every aspect of their lives is controlled by uh, right. Israeli occupation. Right. By so, a pass system. Right. It's, system. it's it's a total, you know, legalized apartheid system. Um, and so, yeah, so like, John, what, when you're saying, you know, Palestinians going to pray at Al-Aqsa Mosque in East Jerusalem during Ramadan, um, and they're seeing the, you know, continued um, wave of expulsions in Sheikh Jarrah, which is, you know, it's like just literally a stone's throw from, from Damascus Gate. Um, it, it, you know, it kind of like, um, it highlighted, you know, a lot of the, the current and historic, I mean, the, we're, you know, it's also the 73rd uh, anniversary commemoration of the Nakba of mm -hmm. when, when um, 800,000 Palestinians were expelled. So, so there was, you know, and it was the celebration of Jerusalem Day, which is the day that right. Israelis celebrate taking over right. the West Bank and Jerusalem and unifying right. their capital. So it really was a, a, a like a petri dish uh, of of all of the kind of right. factors that go into the Israel-Palestine conflict. The right. the layered pass system had people trapped outside the mosque or trapped inside the mosque, which is what led to some of those fights inside the mosque itself. They were being trapped in there by border police agents and they didn't have Jerusalem IDs. So the stakes were elevated in that moment. Yeah. Um, and that's what's going on all over. And what we've seen now is a sort of uh, coalescing, right? of what's happened in the in with Palestinian citizens of Israel with Palestinian citizens of Jerusalem which are different and the third one Palestinian citizens of the West Bank right. are all coalescing at this one spot at Al-Aqsa during Ramadan during Jerusalem Day during the time that Israeli settlers celebrate the takeover of the land right so there's a rule of law in Israel that's the big uh, that's the big uh, claim that if there's any injustice going on that Palestinians uh, can go through the courts. Um, and if somebody is trying to steal your house, presumably you would call the police. So in this case in Jerusalem, I mean, it's, it's always the case, but there seemed to be some intensification of the judiciary and the police just completely working for uh, the settlers that wanted to throw people out, or is I mean, that is that Israeli is that what state it looks policy. like to me, or is that <laughs> yeah? But then, so then, yeah. why did it? So then, like, I want to get to the point where um, 
it intensifies to the point where the you know the people in Gaza feel like they have to they can't just stand by and let this happen so right so again like this speaks to to the unity of of you know the the palestinians at at, you know no matter their geographical location right now so when um when the settlers announced that they are going to be you know and this is after like a month really of pogroms of these like fascist you know super extremist right-wing uh, settler organizations rampaging uh, through neighborhoods in East Jerusalem. Do you sense that they're also ramping up their activities? I believe yeah, so. absolutely. There's no consequences so what, for them. So why not? Yeah. And, you know, as, as you know, you saw on the like Jacob, the settler video and other videos, you see these settler organizations saying, well, we're not just going to take Sheikh Sharah. We're going to we're mm-hmm. going to go further and further and further until there are no Palestinians left. Right. Basically, like saying mm-hmm. the quiet part out loud, which has always mm-hmm. been Israeli policy. So so, what so you is had... there, what's behind that? Do you have a sense of why they just went so they've been i mean they've always they've (laughs) they've always been like this i mean in in, yeah it's an annual march it's an annual thing so like it's a it's a yearly you know fascist celebration where they there's always these chants of death to the arabs and burn all the arabs i mean that's just been like that's that's their that's their slogan right that's their thing um and and so um so so it was so so they they had announced that they were going to be um marching through jerusalem at, you know like after these series of pogroms um palestinians fought back and resisted i mean there was like you know kind of a street battle outside the old city um and then the settlers basically had to call off their march and i think that was a huge humiliation not just for the settler movement but for the israeli government like they can't you know they can't control their own they just called it off because they couldn't they couldn't they couldn't get they couldn't eject the palestinians that were holding basically oh the day they blocked it off it was going to be a race war yeah it was it was going to be huge and then so so there was a celebration you know obviously within the the palestinian community not just in east jerusalem but all over palestine um, and, uh, and then there was the confrontation at Alexa where, where settlers were, um, you know, trying to prevent people from praying during the last few days of Ramadan. Um, and the Gaza resistance, um, gave Israel a warning, you know, Hey, you, you have to let people pray at this holy site. We'll give you two hours. And if you don't, uh, if you don't let people pray, we're going to resist. And Israel did not take the warning. And so uh, last Monday, um, the resistance factions in Gaza, uh, in defense of Jerusalem, um, fired a couple of crude rockets and, and right. then Israel unleashed its war machine on Gaza hours later. So the, the footage just before that is like people in the mosque with like fires being set by settlers, mobs of settlers just dancing yeah celebrating the fires being set people inside getting shot by i guess tear gas canisters are being shot through the windows of the mosque. yeah i mean israeli I, I don't know if they're border police or regular police or like secret forces like i i, I couldn't see the labels on their suits mm-hmm. but like 
dozens of Israeli forces stormed inside Al-Aqsa Mosque and shot tear gas, um, uh, you know, into crowds of worshipers. I mean, this is, it's, it's, unco- I mean, you, they, you just, it's similar to the way the 2000 and yeah, when, when Sharon too, right? strolled up to the, you know, the whole uh, dome of the rock and, and instigated the, for the second intifada. So, so that's where we're at. And then, you know, I, I mean, Israel takes any chance it can get to, to, to how, you know, what it says, mow the lawn um, yeah. in Gaza. Um, and this is now, you know, day, day six, day seven of um, just a relentless, um, excruciating bombing campaign that has killed hundreds of people now. Now, maybe Tarek, maybe Tarek, you could give us a sense of, you know, what six days, up to six days ago, what it was like in Gaza, and then just what, what it's like, what, what, it, what changes when this war happens like this and the entire strip is turned into an emergency. And we ask, I should say, because we know you've been there uh, in during bombings like this yeah. and you work at the hospital there. So, Yeah, I mean, up until now, I've attended basically every major conflict uh, in Gaza since I became a doctor about 10 years ago, which is 2012, uh, 2014, 2018. And, um, and obviously, I'm not there right now, but sort of witnessing from from pretty up close in uh, technological terms. And it's always more or less the same thing. The attacks really do kind of come out of nowhere. You always, I think it's hard for people here to realize that because they say, well, you must have been expecting it or there was a windup. There's always a windup. If in terms of uh, those conflicts that I mentioned, we're not mentioning, you know, 2016 or 2019 or 2020, we're not mentioning them the multiple escalations. And every time there's one of these escalations, you just kind of wonder to yourself, like, is this going somewhere? Is it not? So we don't, in Gaza, you don't really count anything that's less than a week. Um, Definitely nothing that's less than three or four days because they are so common. And they never accomplish anything. Like very famously, the Israelis more or less bomb the same bank of targets where the Palestinians have learned not to build anything there. Uh, the most famous of these is a place called Safina, which used to be at some point a place where Hamas used to get tortured by the Palestinian Authority, amongst other you know, intelligence activities. The ship, I think it's the, called yeah, in English. Yeah, stands for yeah. the ship. And the Safina was pummeled into the ground, I think in 2008. And every once in a while, when they want to say, oh, we, we bombed a, a target, they go after Safina again. And it's just like, okay, great. You know, like hit Safina as many times as you want, guys. This is fine. We'll say you got as many terrorists as you want. You know, you destroyed a military base and at least nobody gets hurt. But especially now with the coronavirus and that terrible situation, it's been really bad out there. I mean, they don't have the basics in good days. Now they really don't have the basics. So no you can imagine trying to run a war response while also having to worry about coronavirus. You know, if I walk into a room and realize that the patient that I'm dealing with in London, Ontario, Canada, uh, doesn't have, or does have coronavirus, I don't need to worry that much because I'm vaccinated. Well, there almost nobody is vaccinated because there's almost no vaccine coming in. And even with the situation as bad as it is now, 
we're seeing still massive positivity rates of the coronavirus uh, testing that is happening. So we know that there's a, a disaster inside a disaster here. And I can't tell which is the bigger because until last week, really there had been more people killed by coronavirus in Gaza than by the last, I think, last few wars combined or very close to there. We were almost at that inflection point. So it's, it's been bad for a while and it was going to get worse than we could tell. And so adding this new layer, it's just devastating, especially because it's clear that the Israelis have no compunction at the moment about targeting the infrastructure of medical care. It's, it hasn't happened that Shifa has been closed in before. That hasn't happened. This is new, and this is a massive escalation. Yeah, so okay. describe that, Tarek. They've, yeah. they've bombed the roads in and out of Shifa, making it difficult, if not impossible, to get people in and out in vehicles. Shifa, Shifa just, is the... Shifa being the... Oh, you were going to say. It's the main hospital in Gaza City. The main hospital. So. Yeah, Shifa's probably the size of your average, like, Hudson's Bay in a mall. You know, it's about that size complex-wise. It's not the size of the mall. It's just the size of kind of like the main store in, in one of these big mall areas. And it has really three main entrances and two very minor entrances. They're all roads that lead into it. One that comes in from the east, one that comes in from the northeast, one that comes in from the southwest. And then sort of, if you can imagine that whole thing rotated a bit, two more that are behind it that are very, very minor. And so the, the roads that were bombed were basically the three major roads that are in. The minor roads, you know, frankly, I didn't check. I expected that they went at the very beginning of the conflict. And that, that actually serves a couple of purposes because yes, you almost always during these conflicts, the people are not coming in with ambulances. The people are coming in on regular cars from other citizens because the reality is everybody kind of knows basic first aid. And everybody knows that if you need an ambulance to get in there, it's just going to take too long. So we actually don't have the problem we have in Canada, which is a patient will sit there dying on the street and people don't generally know what to do and they're waiting for ambulances. There, everyone just, you know, we they do their what's called scoop and run. So you grab the, the person off of the street, the victim, patient, whatever. You throw them into the back of a car. Somebody jumps on top of them um, as a general way to restrain the person. And then off you go. So this is the main thing that's being prevented by, by bombing in the, out those streets. And the second thing as well is that Shifa always turns into a, a refugee camp during these times. So in 2014, famously, the entire courtyard was tense and it wasn't just tense for a short period of time. So when I got in there, um, I, it took me over a month to get inside in 2014. And when I got in there, Already the whole place was filled, but even in 2015, middle to end of 2015, there were still people living in the Shifa courtyard. So that's the other thing that they've successfully managed to cut off. And really the messaging from this war has been from the first building that was bombed in the green zone. So the, that, that building that was bombed by uh, the port, that was in an area called the green zone and every building around it was flying a UN flag. So Ever since that happened, it was very, very clear messaging. They're not going to go and destroy Shijaiya. They are going after Rimal, one of mm -hmm. the richest neighborhoods. They're going after the Mina, the port, one of the richest neighborhoods. They are mm -hmm. going after the places that everybody thought were no-go, no-touch zones. Destroying the banks and destroying the 
the civil infrastructure. I've never Office heard of buildings. a bank being targeted, frankly, right? Because yeah. these banks fundamentally are part of an Israeli matrix of control, economically speaking. So these are targets that I've never seen before. They clearly represent a new strategy. Yeah, well, the media building, right? So in the 2014 war, if we remember, they were letting like bus tours of Israeli journalists drive around in Gaza. Previously, they'd blocked us all from getting in for years and years. Um, this time, they seem to be doing the opposite. They've locked down Gaza. No journalists are getting in unless they were in already. And then a couple of days ago, they took down the offices of Al Jazeera, the broadcast stations of Al Jazeera, the Associated Press, Ramadan, a few more Gazan media outlets, and did it on live TV. Yeah, three separate, maybe even four buildings in separate airstrikes that have, you know, very well-known media centers, um, not just for international media, but for, for local media and regional. I mean, you know, the, the like headquarters of, um, or, you know, the Gaza City offices of, of um, you know, Lebanese, um, Jordanian, Syrian media, media sources um, were all obliterated. Um, the, the Mabna Jala, the Jala building, um, named after the street, that place also had about half of the internet backbone of Gaza going through it. Huh. So the, the other thing, it didn't, Gaza's internet structure is so redundant that it's very hard to actually take out all of the internet with one strike. But having said that, what it did is it really turned down the speed for everybody involved. So that's the main reason why you kind of saw relatively high definition video before live. And then afterwards it all shifted to very choppy, very low speed, very low quality. And I think that that may represent sort of uh, putting out an eye media-wise, because the other thing as well, of course, is that yeah. that's where the high-speed satellite links for video exist mm -hmm. for all these places. Yeah, that's where they recorded all their live hits. It's where they got the area that they could see over the whole Gaza Strip. And yeah. so it's an interesting change. They're now obviously punitively targeting in Gaza, and they're targeting the upper... They're not targeting the border areas like they did in 2014. And I wonder how much, how significant the tunnel operations were um, that Israel doesn't want to fight that war on the perimeters. And it's just taken it to the downtown areas. Um, because as we know, the underneath Gaza is what the Israelis call a metro or a subway system of tunnels um, that um, have basically, I would argue, made it impossible for an Israeli ground attack. I may be proven wrong in the days ahead, but it doesn't appear that a ground attack is something that the Israelis see um, as a realistic option after 2014 when their invasion was stopped within the first day, within the first uh, mile of their progress. Um, and this air war with the, ta the different targets appears to be a way of avoiding that historical conflict. A couple of notes on that point you just made, John. Like, when Israel announced a kind of a fake news that they were going right. to go in and that they'd started, and then they announced afterwards, like, that was great because the media said we were invading the resistance got ready and got into position and then we were able to bomb them which we which was great thank you for that and the media were like oh cool glad we could play that role in your uh in your war and then the other thing is when they did announce it the resistance said almost exactly like what you were saying john they said you know 
please do, you know, we invite you to invade because that's the shortest route to our, our victory. I, I want to inject one strain of thinking here, which is that very often I see people talk strategically about what a ground invasion means, but being in the hospital, a ground invasion means an awful lot of people are going to die and all of them are, are going to be killed in horrible ways. So right now, by and large, people are dying quick deaths that are crush related. So a building comes down on you, uh, you're dead. We don't deal with those patients that much in the hospital. You know, so in, in 2012 or 2014, when a building would go down, uh, generally we'd be circulating in the hospital with an earbud in listening to the radio, the radio there. It's like traffic reports here. You know, this building has gone down, a bomb was heard there. Even the 60 in two or three minutes, all of them would be reported one by one, just like if there was a car accident, just like you know the 401 reports for, for those in Canada, that's one of our major highways. When the ground invasion begins, two things happen. One of them is that the rescuers can't go quickly or easily. And the other one is that that's when the penetrating injuries start, that is to say bullet holes in people's bodies and people die slowly. They die in misery and agony. Sometimes they do horrible things to themselves to try to stay alive, like tying off limbs that they know are gonna be amputated because they're there for days. Um, and in the hospitals, like, yes, they're overwhelmed now, but it's, it's really going to be unimaginable because every one of those patients by and large that makes it to the hospital is survivable. If you had enough resources, if you had enough tools, if you had enough anything, and because the, the paramedics will not bring you somebody who they think is going to die. It's a waste of the ambulance ride. It's a waste of the diesel. You, they just won't do it. So I, I think one of the things that I would say, and I know that um, all of us talk about and think about this stuff in strategic terms. Yes, the Israelis will be dealt a severe strategic blow, but oh my fucking God, it's going to be awful uh, for the Palestinians. Well, yeah. And it's not like a ground invasion is not like a Napoleonic battle where, uh, you know, the Palestinians line up and the Israelis line up like the way the Israelis fight. Like when I was researching siege breakers, there's this report called this is how we fought in Gaza by a group of uh, Israeli, I guess, form soldiers, whatever dissidents call it, uh, breaking the silence. Breaking I think the the organization's yeah. called. Yeah. And, you know, they 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 don't like they don't walk in like they they hang <laughs> back. They artillery shell. Yeah, they shell to the point of complete saturation. Then they advance six inches. Then they shell and shell and shell. Then they bring the bulldozers and bulldoze everything. It's very hard to get the Israeli army into a battle from the point of view of the resistance. And when you know when they do, when they are able to do that, of course, they have a good chance of winning. Which is why the Israelis make sure they avoid that scenario. Yeah, the Israelis caused uh, horrific, horrific carnage in 2014 on the on lead of their ground invasion by just saturating with with artillery shells that are smaller and do a lot more of the damage that Tarek was talking about rather than collapsing houses, just exploding inside them and collapsing them on top. It's uh, a really nasty process, but the Israelis are big on this concept of deterrence, right? It's what animates all through their media, all through their messaging, this concept of deterrence, which is quite clearly gone from the people of Gaza. 
There is no Israeli deterrence that is effective at this point in the game. I wanted to talk to you about this, John, because over the decades, we can talk about decades for all of us now, John, you and me have especially had like a debate where I was always very attuned to the kind of thing Tarek was just talking about, like the humanity, and you were too, obviously, but I was always like, well, this is just, you know, this is all kind of controlled by Israel. It's kind of like carnage that they're just inflicting. It's, it's sadistic. And you would try to try to present to me like the idea that no, the resistance is actually uh, developing capacity um, in spite of all this uh, over time. So each conflict, the resistance also has some initiative and they're able to do things that the Israelis are not able to control or stop. And so I guess that's what I you know, wanted to ask you about because that's one aspect of this that you watch, I think, more closely than, than I do and how you see that developing this time. Yeah, well, it. I mean, it's true. The development of the the. I mean, essentially, the history of Gaza is that it began to be walled off in the late 1980s when the peace process happened. So, um, they've had their own um, autonomous. Um, well, and then the Israelis left in 2005, and the Israelis left there and essentially gave the Palestinians a ghetto. They gave them a ghetto but they gave them a ghetto that they controlled inside fully, which is not something that Palestinians had had in any other place in the once the settler project had started. And they were able to build a indigenous production industry for building weapons materiel to not be dependent on the outside, to not be dependent on smuggling tunnels, which were, it was possible to close, to seal, to attack, They've developed their own army. Like at the 2014 war, the big thing the Israelis were saying was like, you know, for so many decades, they were fighting terror, terror, terror. And the Israelis in 2014 were very upfront in saying, we're fighting an army. And the Palestinians themselves have created an army. They've created an army structure on the ground, a joint operations room. And they've developed capacity to make the war come to Israel, which for decades, it never did. Israelis were always safe from everything that happened. There's not more massacres now in Palestine because they have rockets than there were before. The massacres are consistent. What Palestinians have developed is a standoff capacity for firing rockets from an area where you're entrapped and can't leave. It's a very logical development and one that has had very significant impacts on Israel. In 2014, the rocket war kept Israelis in uh, bomb shelters for more than 50 days. It was in the summer, it closed their airports. All uh, Most international airlines had to come out and make a statement saying that it was not safe to fly to Israel. Um, and then in to combat that after 2014, because Israel lost a summer of tourism in 2014 because their airport was shut down, they decided to open another airport, an international airport in Elat in the south, so that when rocket fire was coming, they wouldn't lose their uh, Jewish pilgrimages and summer vacation um, tourism industry. Well, last week, um, the uh, Kassam Brigades shut down the airport in Tel Aviv, and so as Israel had planned to do for the previous five years while they were building this airport in Alat, they simply moved the flights from Ben-Gurion in Tel Aviv to Alat. And so they did that. And within an hour of doing that, 
Hamas launched their longest range rocket ever, 250 kilometers, which put a lot within reach. And they did that kind of, uh, um, they've done those kind of agit propaganda, you know, like to, to set up something like kind of like Nasrallah did when 2006, when he said, you know, look out your windows at the burning ship. You know, the, the Palestinians have been saying things like, you know, look at the rocket that just went to Elat. And um, the rocket capacity is really the only thing that changes the equation in Israel at the moment because it involves everybody. The air raid sirens involve everybody and everybody runs to the bomb shelters. And this kind of um, ability to interact with the population, to communicate with the Israeli population, um, I, yeah, I think it can't be underestimated. It, it ought not to be underestimated because it's um, it's had an impactful change on the, the times in between, you know, what Tarek was talking about, how the flare-ups happen for a few days. Those flare-ups were less at the control of the Israelis than they have been in the past. And that's a gradual development of the resistance in Gaza um, to to make there be a cost to attacking the enclave. And I don't think that anyone in Gaza is hoping for a ground invasion. I think that there's a certain element in Palestine I've written about before and what Tarek talked about, about how the bombs just fall out of the sky and you don't, you don't have any way of interacting with that. Um, when ground soldiers come in and people can fight a fair fight, it's very difficult to really express how frustrated Palestinians are with not ever being able to have a fair fight, you know. And it's uh, it's a situation that Gaza has allowed a base of operations, if you will. Um, and hopefully, I I'm optimistic and have been, I think what you're referring to, Justin, is we've talked for years about how Gaza could be a base of operations for um, you know, for the dispersed Palestinian diaspora to have a place of ground that they can hold. And I think the Israelis bomb in this campaign with that sense. They took out the nicest towers in Gaza. They took out the towers with the best communications. Um, they took out the bank with the most money. You know, they took, they, they're, they're, took, they're taking punitive actions. They're not closing tunnel entrances. They're not, they're doing punitive actions that indicate that they don't believe they can fight a ground war with this, with seven years after they failed spectacularly. I just don't think, I don't see it. And by the time this podcast comes out, I may be proven wrong and speculating is generally not a good thing, but I think that there's a lot of things that point to it. And one of the things that points to it, maybe Nora can talk a little bit about this, is the the way the West Bank rose up too. Yeah. And the way that 48 Israel rose up too. And so you don't just have rockets from Gaza. You have a, a coalescing national liberation strategy in a way that looks like what we've kind of always wanted it to look like. Uprisings in 48, pressure in the West Bank, and a, resi a competent resistance in Gaza. Just to add one other thing, which is the diaspora. No, right. Like we're seeing demonstrations in Lebanon, in Absolutely. Jordan. I mean, the Jordanians, they broke the fence between Palestine and Jordan over the weekend. Um, and they were marching, you know, in, in northern Palestine. So you see this real rapid reunification, I think, of diasporic Palestinian communities 
and you know including the ones in in the west bank and inside 48 you know in unity in solidarity with um palestinians under siege in gaza and this is you know what what someone said this is israel's worst nightmare you know israel has tried for 73 years to to separate palestinians to to give you know, certain communities of Palestinians um, rights that other communities of Palestinians don't have, um, you know, to it's the classic, you know, divide and conquer tactic. And it's failing. I mean, Israel is a is a failed project in itself. But these attempts to separate Palestinian communities and turn them against each other is failing. And so, yeah, so you're seeing uprisings all over the West Bank. You're seeing a rejection of the Palestinian Authority, uh, you know, attempts to subcontract the occupation from Israel and trying to, to quell the protests. People are just rejecting that outright. Of course, there was supposed to be the first elections of the West Bank uh, in the West oh. Bank in 15 years, but that was uh, that was postponed once again. Um, so there, there, these these tensions that that build and build and build. Um, and, uh, you know, they, it, it surpasses Israeli or the Palestinian authorities' abilities to, to, to try and control Palestinian uprisings. So it's, it's um, yeah, I mean, Tarek, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, um, especially as someone who lives in the diaspora. Not to mention, like, I mean, I was part of a demonstration here in, in San Francisco this past weekend. We had about 10, 10 to 12,000 people. Out in the streets, we had uh, people all across the country, even in Miami, Florida, thousands of Palestinians and people who support the liberation of Palestine were out in the streets. Um, Brooklyn, Washington, D.C., Pennsylvania, you know, just everywhere. Yeah, Tarek, what are your thoughts as, as you see, you know, this unification kind of reemerging? I think that there's something that, that is really happening here, which is that people like me who are displaced, you know, had we uh, been left in, in Palestine or in those refugee camps, it would have been a bit of a different story. But we've now been displaced to the West that wanted to extract us for our capabilities. Generally, you know, the Palestinian diaspora was very well educated. Um, Palestinians here in, in Canada around kind of go through my family or even uh, the families of friends we're all relatively well-educated, we're all contributing, we're all being extracted from just like any other resource from the third world. And I think a, a part of that, the, the implicit deal really was supposed to be that they would extract from us, but that we were supposed to be grateful for that, that we were supposed to let go of everything that was behind us, even though we were aware of the West's involvement in it. And at the same time, just be happy to be here. I can't tell you how many times I've been told, like, be happy to be here. But we didn't. We never forgot the people we left behind because sometimes those people are our families. One of my medical students, her uncle was killed, a, a neurologist, uh, Moeen Lalul, got killed two days ago. You know, what's that, what's that woman supposed to think? You know, that part of the deal can never exist so long as she has wounds so raw. He was, you know, her, her favorite uncle that she saw every summer while she was there. So it's, it's really uh, devastating to sort of go through this and to, to see what's happening. And at the same time, we've gotten educated, we've gotten rich, and we've gotten sophisticated. And so from the ability to speak to the media, 
it's not like in the early 90s where it was, uh, you know, hey, Abu Abdullah, can you speak three words of English? Go on to BBC. We're there fighting with the BBC. They need us. And we're saying no. You know, we're there uh, asserting ourselves on CNN. We're telling them on NBC that we don't accept what they're saying. And that claiming of a voice, you know, that claiming of a voice, I think, is one of the biggest things that the diaspora has been doing recently. Uh, that claiming of the narrative as well. Um, and we weren't sophisticated enough to do that before. Not necessarily, my parents, for example, are very sophisticated in terms of their ability to analyze the situation in Arabic and to speak eloquently in Arabic. But they don't have that ability in English. When they speak in English, um, general sort of white supremacy suppresses their voice. You speak with an accent, you make grammar mistakes, you're not acceptable. Well, how about me? I yeah, speak we like have you Muhammad Al Kurd. Yeah. Yeah. In Jerusalem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We speak like you do. We understand your language. You understand your culture. And it's not that we are hidden or sleeper agents. No, no. It's that we care about human rights because the other really interesting thing about being diasporic is you do not care about Palestine. I've never been there. I mean, aside from work, I don't got anybody there. My involvement, my engagement with it is as a human in a human rights issue. Yes, I have connections. Yes, I have linguistic ability and all that. But really what I see there, I see everywhere else. And I want it all to change. I want it all to change, not just Palestine. I wanted to ask everybody, despite John's admonition that we not speculate, because when I, you know, again, like I wrote Siegebreakers because I was trying to speculate. I was, I was trying to think of how could this situation, which seems to just have this cyclical quality to it, where Israel decides to bomb Gaza and then stop, decides to stop bombing Gaza and, and seals it in and doesn't let medical aid or, or even food increasingly or any other uh, capacity to rebuild uh, and then bombs it again in a few years? Like I, I was trying to think of like how, what is a possible exit out of this and what would be the prerequisites like the minimum prerequisite so it's like well there would have to be an increasingly effective resistance which there is there would have to be some kind of uprising elsewhere in the domains that are occupied by israel which seems to be happening there would have to maybe be some more help from the neighbors whether it's like egypt lebanon jordan which is also maybe starting and then my, uh, you know, in my silliness, I was like, maybe there would be some more help from Western or <laughs> within it, within the West or within Israel. And I mean, you know, we've had some demonstrations, but so, you know, the thing is like, I, I totally, you know, I totally see how horrified the prospect of a ground invasion is. And we don't want that. And nobody wants that. We also, you know, can't stand the fact that Israel is going more and more fascist and they're having more and more of these demonstrations of lynchings and lynch mobs yeah. but it's like before this ends it's gonna get worse i can't see israel just voluntarily getting less fascist than it no, is no that's just not how fascist states operate right like they don't just and, like have some um, sort of like moral you know, hey recognition. let's hey you know what this, this was bad. a bad idea this was <laughs> yeah. bad we shouldn't have done that right yeah, so no. that's not and i don't you know and the, and the west seems to be going more and more right-wing as well so that doesn't right. like the whole idea that like the liberals in the west would rescue like there was this model yeah. and i think a lot of us had this in our heads and writing seed 
breakers for me was like getting rid of that model, which was like, if the Palestinians are nonviolent enough and they're Gandhian enough and they use enough soul force and they suffer and they show their suffering to the world, then liberals in the West will, will, will it'll move their hearts and they'll, they'll save the Palestinians. Uh, that's not how the world works. No, I think. it's fantastic. And I think fantastic. a lot of people have a lot of delusions about that still. And I hope that in the West, they let go of that. But I guess my question, I've told you my scenario, but like, <laughs> how do you do, like, I don't, do you think this could be the round? Or do you think um, there are certain things that are missing from this round, but like eventually when this thing does end, when the siege is broken, um, how do you think it's gonna come about? What do you think needs to happen? Do you wanna start Nora? Cause you seem ready to. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like, you know, the the financiers of Israel's death machine, you know, the US, Canada, the European Union, the United Kingdom, like, they have to um, be pressured by ground, you know, grassroots, groundswell, you know, civilian, civil society pressure um, to cut that, that flow of capital. That's one thing. We're also seeing, you know, acts of solidarity in terms of the international labor movement. I mean, dock workers in Livorno in Italy refused to load <laughs> weapon supplies bound for Israel on a ship. And I believe uh, another action took place in Napoli, you know, the port of Naples, where dock workers are refusing to load weapons uh, headed for Israel. So th that's material consequences for Israel's actions. That's a material way that, that people, you know, invested in humanity and not militarism and colonialism can, can actually help. And, you know, here in the Bay Area, in 2014, activists were able, working with the dock workers and, and the, the International Longshore Workers Union here were able to block Zim, which is Israel's shipping main shipping company, from ever docking in the San Francisco Bay. And then actually the, those, um, those uh, actions spread across the West Coast so that actually Zim could not land, you know, they could not dock in any of the West Coast ports since 2014. Zim is trying to dock once again um, in the next few weeks, I believe, here in San Francisco. And so there are like, you know, these massive mobilizations that are going to happen. Um, again, working with the International Longshore Workers Union to try and stop those ships from docking. So actions like that have material effects. Uh, obviously, the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement um, is kind of the least people can do to get involved like neither Israel nor the US nor Canada is going to voluntarily stop supplying yeah. Israel. That's not how this works. So they have know. to get the feeling that they're going to lose something. Right. More exactly. Right. I think they have to lose something. They I do. mean, I think that's that's my yeah. basic take. It's difficult to see a colonial pattern of history of just giving back their stolen land. I think that the right. the stakes have to be escalated and I'm not necessarily saying a, a military victory and a, a reconquering, but the stakes have to be high for Israelis and previous in the previous decades, it just, it, you know, there was the, the, the brief campaign of suicide bombings that shook things up a bit in 2001, but those only lasted for months. And other than that, Israelis have been pretty much insulated from the conflict for their for their last 40 years and that's just 
that's what's changing. That's what's changing. And, um, and I think it's an important change. I, I think right now, if Israel were to stop today, pretty much that's the most winning strategy that they can adopt yeah. strategically. Yeah. Okay. It was a bad idea to go into the, into the air war. And I would doubt that any general looked at Netanyahu and said, yes, this is a good idea. You know, at the end of the day, the generals understand that this is a bad idea. And a ground war is similarly a bad idea. The generals may similarly protest. And similarly, I think a ground war will probably be launched on the grounds of the politics of it, the domestic politics, the international politics, whatever it is. The distinction now being that there is no inflow into the center of Gaza from the periphery like Shijaiya, because there is no safe place. So when the Israelis declared the richest communities in Gaza, like Shifa and uh, all those other all those other buildings, to be places that they would willingly bomb. Um, it was it meant that everyone was like, well, I may as well just stay home if I'm going to be bombed everywhere. So, for example, the road of the beach, which is also another place where people, especially in the summer, might set up tents. All of that is bombed. The, that whole road is is also, according to my friends, like basically destroyed. So I, I do sadly anticipate that they're going to get themselves stuck, at, politically speaking, and sort of feel like, okay, well, we now have to do a ground war to finish this off. Um, and Hamas, to, to a large extent, is probably stuck too, because the more attacks and the, the uglier that it gets in Gaza, the more rockets they're probably going to end up firing. Um, and very likely, they've at this point, they've spent their shitty old stock of rockets, just like any war machine, and they're probably getting ready for some nice new rockets that that are going to up the game and perpetuate that sort of uh, position where nobody feels like they can back down. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, in terms of, uh, you know, in the West, could the West shut it down at any time? They could shut it down. Absolutely. Right? I mean, they could. They could just declare, you know, Netanyahu's under arrest for war crimes. That's, yeah. that's it. Like, yeah. there's everything just stops the next day. So it's Israel's it's, choice to wake up every day and choose this violence. I mean, they yeah. they're and, the ones and, that have a choice, yeah. and the U.S. and Canada and, the US, and, the, yeah, and Biden's choice too. Exactly. Right? Like, like Biden definitely has the power to. I mean, I don't know Biden literally like Biden, <laughs> but you know. Whoever right. makes the decisions. Right. right. Yeah. But 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 these superpowers choose to inflict more pain on Palestine. It's an active choice that they make every day. And they could choose to stop it. I think we see some dynamic where it could where it's eventually going, but I, I it may it may it may be several more rounds of this before. Yeah. And this could go on for a while. Yeah, is- I mean the Israelis said that. Kassam has launched 3,200 rockets in the six days. Hezbollah launched 4,000 in the 34-day July war in 2006, and the 50-day war in 2014 was just over 4,000. So they're fighting an entire war worth of rockets in one week now. That's that's the equation. Yeah, and and they're not blowing their reserve in the first week. Right. No, they they, they certainly aren't. Yeah. yeah, Abu Beda said six months. Six so. months. Yeah, I think I saw that on your Twitter. Feed. Six months of what? I didn't see this. They could keep up the rockets for six months. Yeah. That's what they're saying. I mean, there's probably some bluster in there, but I don't think they bluster. I think that's one of the things. Like Hezbollah doesn't bluster, right? And Hamas, I don't. 
I mean, they, yeah, yeah, they counted them. Hamas just has sent the guy to count them, and he's like, no, six months. <laughs> They're the most practical, honestly. If people in Canada understood how practical those guys were, I think it would yeah. be a real different story about these massacres. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're essentially targeting government, like when they say like the Hamas ruled Gaza Strip or whatever, right? It's the government of the Gaza Strip. So when they say they're, they're targeting Hamas terror, they're targeting the civilian and civil infrastructure of the Gaza Strip. Right. I mean, street in in that logic, streets are Hamas, you know, infrastructure, right? Like water uh, wells and and traffic traffic cops stations. That's all Hamas infrastructure. And when they and when they lynch, right? Yeah, go ahead. And when they lynch people in 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 Jerusalem or the West Bank or or Forty Eight Israel, they don't talk about Hamas at all. Interesting, right? They just ignore it because Hamas has nothing to do with those. One of the things I I think we should talk about though before we close is what people can do. Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. that's a very common a common thing, and you know we're kind of getting to a point here where what we've done is we've really analyzed and discussed the various ups and downs and and strategic sort of aspects, which. I, I don't know, might be the, the primary uh, interest of, of your viewers and listeners. However, I, I get a lot of people asking me, well, what can I do? Mm-hmm. And I've sort of broken that down into a couple of categories. You know, one of them is the political dimension, which I think is important, but limited for us in Canada and the US. One of them is the uh, humanitarian dimension, the short-term immediate humanitarian dimension. The other one is the rebuilding dimension. So for example, on the political dimension uh, in Canada, groups like um, CJPME and NCCM, uh, Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East and National Council of Canadian Muslims have done an excellent job advocating and really changing the government's position. For example, the Canadian government has not said at least to my knowledge, the canon that Israel has the right to defend itself. You know, the uh, education I, minister of Ontario rolled his own um, custom tweet about that, but that's all. Sure. So yeah, but but I mean, that's that's a pretty, you know, that's a pretty low, <laughs> low bar. bar. Things have changed for sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, changed. Trudeau Trudeau reiterated his support for a two-state solution. That was that was about his. Yeah, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. But but having said that, I think there is some political work to be done. People should take heart in in the petitions and in the letter writing and all of that stuff. It does make a difference. Um, and I, I think I can possibly see John die a little bit when I talk about that, but you know, I'll stand by it for now. Petitions. <laughs> No, we have to have layers. We have to have layers, guys. We have to have layers to the struggle. It's a multifaceted struggle. That's what it's one of the layers. All right. That's progress, John. I'm I'm very pleased. (laughs) The the next bit is the immediate humanitarian ask, right? They need shit right now. And right now, nothing is going in. Nothing is is coming out, obviously. And so uh, a lot of it has to do with local domestic production. We haven't talked at all about GLIA, one of the organizations that I work with, but, you know, we're part of an indigenous community that's making medical supplies. For example, gauze ran out in 2014. You know, gauze, by the way, the word gauze comes from Gaza. Mm -hmm. And so it was a nice deep irony, like Gaza uh, in the Roman era when gauze was named, basically they would send material to Gaza and they would weave it. Gauze is weaved in a very specific way to, to... um, break apart in a specific way. And it was called Gazatum, which then turned into gauze. So they will run out of gauze. 
they will run out of gloves, they will run out of all this stuff. So even just looms weaving gauze there is meaningful. Um, making PPE for the coronavirus response is meaningful. All of this stuff is meaningful. Palestinians have limited but some capacity and we should support it. And then the third thing is going to be the reconstruction. We know that there's gonna be a need for reconstruction. And right now people are hot. People wanna put money into these things. We should give them an outlet for post-war reconstruction should tell them what they can do. For example, um, you know, organizations in Canada like Islamic Relief Canada or Medical Aid for Palestinians in the UK. I don't really know American organizations. These organizations from the medical Middle perspective East Children's are, Alliance, yeah. Yeah, from, from the medical perspective, they're excellent. They're gonna be a big part of the rebuilding. Yeah, and we can put those links up on thebriefpodcast.com as well. Final thoughts, Justin, Tarek, John? For me, it's like, this is a, you know, it's a settler native dynamic. It's, it's colonialism. And there's a, there's an anti-Palestinian racism too, that pervades every discussion, every space. And like, there's a moment, you know, there was a, for the past five or six days, I feel like the, the real anti-Palestinian racists have been quiet. And now they're just like catching their breath and they're coming out and they're talking about how pro-Palestine is the real big, like all the, all the stuff, right? All the stuff that usually happens is going to start to happen. And it's like, for me, I guess I would say like, don't lose your nerve. If this was the first time that you spoke out about this, you know, don't be like, you can expect some, some nasty people to say some nasty things about you on the internet. It's going to be okay. You're going to be fine. Your conscience is more important and don't be cowed by any of this stuff because I think these moments have a certain feeling and the moments pass, but the situation that the Palestinians are in is untenable and, uh, and it's, we, we, you know, we just have to get ready for a longer haul. I think it's inspiring what's happening. And I think that the, the carnage that Israel always meets out is devastating and awful and should have them in the international criminal court at some point or some sort of proper variation of that. Um, but the, um, yeah, the coalescing of the Palestinian struggle, the courage in the face of overwhelming horror coming from the sky is, um, and having been there and lived in Gaza for years. And um, yeah, it's very, uh, it's a very rich thing for me and watching it, I'm not in despair. I'm, I find it very inspiring. For me, really what, what I would say is that we have gone through this before and every time we make changes and improvements to how we deal with situations like this. So I'm keeping notes of what I wish I would have done five years ago. And I'm going to try to make sure that I do that because I don't honestly think this is the last time we see something like this. I don't think it's time yet. And if it is, well, great. I'll throw the notebook in the trash. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and and the, other, the other thing that I've been thinking a lot about is that we as a solidarity movement have a very good opening gambit, but we have no mid game. We definitely have no end game. Mm-hmm. And so right now, I think what we're all trying to do is develop the mid game. That's yeah. one of the places where we're weak. And Justin alluded to that when you know he said, like, look, these guys have been quiet for a few days and now they're getting ramped up. Well, get ready for the editorials. Get ready mm-hmm. for, you know, the 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 editorial boards of newspapers coming out and obfuscating the issues unbelievably. They're not mm-hmm. gonna come out and say Palestinians should die, but they're gonna imply it. 
and they're basically going to make it the only conclusion that you can reach. So mm -hmm. I think we need to develop a better mid game. I don't have a mid game. Um, and so I mean that for myself as much as I mean that for anybody else. And none of us are even thinking of an end game. So I, I think we really need to, to develop that as well, strategically speaking. Okay. Oof. On that note, we all, all sign off. Nora, Electronic Intifada editor and host of The Brief Podcast, Justin Poder author of Siege Breakers, a Gaza resistance novel, which I highly recommend people check out for an alternative version for how these could go. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Tarek Lubani is an emergency room physician in London and Shifa Hospital in Gaza. And I'm John Elmer with The Brief. Thanks a lot for joining us. Mm -hmm.